This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. life he searches far and wide, half-blind with bloodshot eyes and too many brides. For a hint of his mother in another woman, all Sid found was another mistake and another bride, until one day God drops by to talk. He says, Sid, stop playing games. For once in Sid's life, he listens. He tries to behave. Lo and behold, God touches his soul and plunks down Linda. He is grateful to God and promises to be good the rest of his life. Sid has no choice. God is always watching him, and he knows he doesn't have much time left to be good. Valeria Tellis interviews Sid Nackman, who reveals what it's like to live with bipolar. Sid Nackman was the only child of immigrant parents from Russia and Germany, who tried for 13 years to have him and were very tired from trying so hard. His initials are S-I-N, for Sidney Irving Nachman. He never found out if he was a sin or a joy. Sid Nachman is also the author of Bipolar Me. Bipolar Me provides a penetrating glimpse into the day-to-day experience of a man who dealt with a condition for which there was no name at the time a time when such chemical imbalances might be diagnosed as a form of schizophrenia and could be treated with electric shock treatment or end up with the sufferer being locked away. Bipolar Me has garnered high praise from readers and reviewers alike. Sid's no-holds-barred writing style produces a work that is filled with hilarious stories that show us that life is just plain good. Book Lover USA said that the book is a roller coaster ride through the mind of one of the funniest and endearing storytellers of his generation. It is a highly entertaining memoir that allows readers a glimpse into the unfettered mind of a bipolar boy who never grows up until his hair turns white. Readers will get to see his world in black and white and vivid color and will feel what he feels when he feels like he weighs 3,000 pounds and a minute later can leap over tall buildings. Sid's life is a life gone wild that settles down when it's almost too late. Here is the interview with Sid Nachman. In your own words, who is Sid Nachman? 
That's a tough question to answer. I, I'm me. I, I uh, was always me, but I hid who I was when I was a kid because I was afraid I knew so much more than the kids in the neighborhood and I wouldn't be macho enough for them. Today, uh, at 85 years of age and it started maybe in my 70s, I could be myself and be as uh, horizontally intellectual as I wanted to be. I, I find that people can only take in so much about a certain personality before they get completely bollocked up. So I normally only show one side of me. I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but that's the best I can do <laughs> Absolutely. at the moment. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Um, I have a few general questions, as I mentioned before. What is another word for life? Another word for life? Life to me is your what you do every day with yourself, what you see through your eyes, what you feel inside, everything that's a part of you, that's part of life, all your beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. I love the way you don't separate ourselves uh, from life. Wonderful. Well, I, I've been very, uh, Valerie, I've been very lucky. Uh, I'm probably the happiest I've ever been in my life at this point in my life. And, ev and every day when I see cripples walking by me my age or the death around me, I say to God, why are you keeping me around so long? My wife's almost my age, and we both feel very lucky that we don't have a million impediments, either mentally or emotionally, in our life. So we're happy. Yeah, I like that. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Freedom to me means you could do within, you know, your current cultures, folkways and mores, anything that you want to do. I mean, freedom to me is to go out every day and do whatever I want to do, to go kayaking, to go bullseye shooting, to, to meet people and say what I think, even though I'm considered very impulsive and spontaneous. My mouth, even with a fairly contained bipolarism, is still a lot for some people to bear. And uh, so far, I've been lucky. A lot of people will still like me. <laughs> in, my, in my neighborhood, you know, which is a village of 140 people or 40 houses, everybody knows me by name. You know, how you doing, Sid? What's happening, Sid? Bye -bye. I don't know who the heck they are, Valerie, half the time. And my wife says, how come everybody knows you? So my mouth must have preceded me at one time or another. That's all I can think of. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> In a very good way, actually. Well, I, I hope so. <laughs> um, what is your greatest joy? What is my greatest joy? Having my wife still love me, having my children love me. Having my dog love me, having all my friends love me, I consider myself the luckiest guy in the world. What do you think is the world's greatest need? Oh, boy, that's really a loaded question, <laughs> Valerie. Uh, I, I think the world has to get back to a value system that isn't as shallow as it seems to be these days. I mean, I use the reason I wrote some of my books are to present a world where truths were black and white, and there was no in-between gray. People know, knew and accepted uh, what was going on and, and didn't rebel uh, if something wasn't politically correct. So I don't know. I hope that answers what you asked me. Yeah. What is your greatest inspiration to wake up every morning? <laughs> well... <laughs> the greatest inspiration if I wake up every morning is to, to bend, to look up in the sky and say, thank you, God, <laughs> for oh, wow. giving me another day. Wow, gratitude. That's my inspiration. Wow. 
What do you think is the purpose of your life? Well, you're really tough ones, kid. <laughs> purpose of my life. Yeah. Well, in my elder age, uh, I think my purpose is not to talk out of both sides of my mouth and, and tell the truth to people and let them know what's real and what's shallow and what isn't shallow. So far, it hasn't gotten me in trouble, although I'm always waiting for somebody to punch me in the mouth. Nobody has. Am I coming on too strong for you, Valerie? <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> really great. I really appreciate your um, honesty. This is The podcast is all about this, uh, just being us, just being life. So I'm going to move the, the conversation to the subject of bipolar. What is the meaning for you of a bipolar mind? And what is your experience with it? Believe it or not, since I seem to be the oldest person who has contacted the illness that people recognize, what is taught, I consider bipolar to be a gift, to be truthful with you. Uh, because once you come down to reality, which is one part of bipolar is three parts, Valerie. It's either being a manic or being depressed or, or coming down to earth and being just a normal human being. Uh, and I, I think being able to look at myself over the years and learn from all my mistakes through bipolar, which which is kind of a very strong way of learning, but, um, you know, teaches your lessons. See, I always got punished if I did something wrong. That was part of my bipolar experience. I hate to get into this God thing because I don't know if you're religious or not. I'm only spiritually religious, not structurally. But every time I made a mistake or did something that involved greed or malfeasance or something that was bad according to our society i wound up getting punished and it started at an early age so every it was like a lesson plan and and learning what not to do and how to correct yourself and that continues it never stops valerie life is a big adventure and a learning curve uh, especially since i am bipolar i probably will always be bipolar and and i did not get it under control without medicine until I was in my 70s. I mean, to be truthful, although um, my spontaneity sometimes scares people still. I usually don't agree with labels. I know you just said the word. We're using the word bipolar. But is there another way of defining uh, this kind of um, behaviors or a way of thinking, way of living that's not constricted to um, concept? Well, for, first of all, bipolar is a chemical uh, imbalance in the brain. And uh, normally, at least for me, it happened so quickly in manic episodes and in depression and got me in trouble uh, for doing things that you should have held back on. I don't mean I'm committing atrocities or crimes or anything, but, you know, like my anger level is probably 100 times stronger than the average person, and my impatience is smaller than a nail on your smallest finger. That's kind of the um, one part of bipolar. Uh, it makes you different, and you have to try and harness yourself so, so I, you don't scare people. Uh, I don't walk around being paranoid that I'm going to, put people off. And today I just say whatever I want to say to people, but I think it's a lot more tempered than it was when I was when I was in my 20s. Um, I could get enraged in a second and a half and, and, and spit out some venom verbally that had no place in reality and got me in trouble. 
Okay, um, fair enough. You mentioned the gifts of bipolar, that bipolar in a way, or it is a gift. Can you tell me what gifts have you received or experienced by being bipolar? One of the things that I've learned by being bipolar is that you generally have more creativity as a human being than, than normal people. I mean, you can go in a million directions that people wouldn't want to get involved in. Uh, for example, writing, like, you know, it's really weird for a person my age to start writing books, but I did. And, and even got nice praise for them, but that's neither here nor there. I always thought the, th the only thing that held me from being manicky up to a certain age was a drug called lithium. They, I was the first guinea pig in, a, in America when it wasn't approved as a drug that was given to me uh, to get me off being manicky so that I could have a good night's sleep and I could stop writing poetry in a day and a half of a whole book or doing some wild things that normal people don't do. I mean, when you're manic, you're completely irresponsible. You don't care about your actions, whether they're good or bad, and you don't feel guilt. But you still know right from wrong. Even in your sickest manifestations, you know right from wrong. So all this media crap about a person was murdered because they were bipolar, or the reason this happened, this bad thing happened, was because of bipolar Uh, they seem to be blaming the whole thing on bipolar, and that's a bunch of baloney. You still contain all the, the, your thinking, even at your sickest point in life. You know that you're sick, and you know you still know right from wrong. Even even when you're depressed, you know that. The only thing the only thing that happened with me is I found out about a guy in Saskatchewan, Canada, named Dr. Humphrey Osmond, who was experimenting with the drug lithium well before it was even known in America. And and uh, one of my relatives tipped me off from a, a magazine article that she read. And I called him in Canada. See, one of my spontaneities, if somebody tells me something, mm -hmm. I immediately react to do something. And, and he was kind enough to find a research doctor for me to put me on lithium. And that got me, that kind of stopped the world and slowed it down a lot. Took 10 years before I was close to being a human being. I, I called. Uh, uh, I called the doctor, Dr. Humphrey Osmond, who was experimenting with the drug lithium, which was not approved or even really known about in the United States in the late 50s, and and told him how sick I was and how I wanted to slow down my mind. And he sent me to a research doctor in Trenton, New Jersey, who put me in the hospital and gave me liquid lithium. And it slowed me down a bit. It was really wonderful for me. I mean, I still was bipolar. I still wasn't normal, but I was a hell of a lot better than I was when I, you know, walking around without it. How long did you take uh, this medication? Unfortunately, uh, I was on lithium for 45 years. I stopped taking it uh. 20 years ago. And the reason that I stopped taking it was it destroys your kidneys. And they only recently found out about that part of it. I mean, it works wonderfully well, but if you're on it too long, uh, you lose a kidney. I did. I only have one kidney now. The other is a shrivel, <laughs> as big as a pea. Uh, and I was afraid, deathly afraid, that if I went off of lithium, even when they told me this, Valerie, that I wouldn't be creative anymore or I'd lose a lot of my energy level. And I found out that was a myth. 
I was the same even without, mm. as far as creativity goes, uh, which was important to me in writing. Oh, yeah. So anyway, there's there's your story on lithium. But I was the first one that they actually putzed around with. I think it was in 1959. Yeah, wow. Is there a, a replacement, a healthier replacement for this medication today? Well, there, there's probably a million medications uh, available for bipolar today, you know, uh, as compared to the lithium that I took that's safer. I don't know what the drug's names are. Uh, I've stayed away from that, Valerie. Okay. I don't think any of the drugs would cure lithium, would cure bipolar. It just kind of levels out the chemical imbalance, but it doesn't cure you of bipolar or manic depressiveness. Right. Do you take any medications? Um, no. That's I haven't taken any medication for 20 years. Wonderful. My wife still loves me. <laughs> she, she has a strong Linda. constitution, Valerie. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so I guess I have another question for you here about the causes of bipolar besides uh, the chemical imbalance. Um, are there other causes? No, that's the real cause. You're, you're born with a different balance of chemicals in your brain. That's just the way that it is. And, and uh you can't develop bipolar both through the environment or something that you live with or uh, by accident or getting beat over the head. It just doesn't happen that way. It's only uh, it's only a natural thing that happens to you from your day of birth. Right. How interesting. When did you discover that there's something about you that was different? <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible question to ask. I discovered it. Every day of my life, I discovered it. Valerie. Mm -hmm. Let me get into it technically. Yeah, yeah. When I was working for RCA and I was 24 years old and I was married, I went through years of what they called rose fever in those days or June fever. They didn't they, they put these monikers to what eventually became bipolar as a name or manic depressive, whichever one you call it. They stopped calling manic you manic depressive because it was too alarming to the relatives, I think. But anyway. I went through every summer in the month of June, I went into a complete depression and I would get the shakes and I'd want to sleep 24 hours a day and I couldn't. And I was numb all over. I couldn't feel any emotions whatsoever. I had no feelings. And at the end of June, I became sit again. Stop. It started for no particular reason, by the way. And this happened for three or four years. And then I had a doctor who said I had to lose weight after three or four years and treating me unsuccessfully for June fever and rose fever. Uh, he put me on a drug called Speed, which kids used, you know, to stay up late at night. Oh, no. I don't yeah. know. They have a million drugs that do that. But it's probably the worst thing you can give somebody with a chemical imbalance in their brain. And from that moment on, after taking it, I destroyed my life, really. Everything of what I loved went completely out of control. It made me into a full-blown manic and out of a good relationship with my wife, I told her off in the most profane way. And from there on in, I mean, give you examples of weird things you do when you're bipolar <laughs> and manic I, I went to shoot bears in, in Shins Pond, Maine. Why would I go to shoot bears in Shins Pond, Maine? I mean, you did all these stupid things. I took a test for uh, at City Hall for a planner position when I knew nothing about a planner's position because I thought I was so smart that I knew everything and I couldn't, and, and I would normally pass. And I flunked, of course. But um, 
I'm trying to give you examples of how out of control you are when you're manicing. Yeah. So it seems to me like uh, there's no fear or very little fear happening in the mind of a bipolar person, which is dangerous. I mean, no, you think you, you think you, you could climb tall buildings in a single bound to answer your mm, question, which is very uh, dangerous. You think you can accomplish anything that's almost impossible in a normal world. But, but when you're manic, again, this is, this doesn't happen in depressions phase of bipolar, but in the manic phase. And you think you can take over the world. You know, I mean, there's, I'm, I mean, example, I wrote a book of poetry in three days without sleeping, 300 pages. Some of it's actually good. I mean, you do all these weird things, but underneath, Valerie, you got to remember that even when you're completely irresponsible and you have no fear, you still wouldn't commit any atrocities because you always know that you're sick and you always have a value system of right and wrong. It never changes. And when I when I read about some exaggerated claims about, you know, you can do all kinds of bad things if you're bipolar, that's S for the birds as far as I'm concerned. When were you uh, correctly diagnosed? In 1959 when they gave me lithium. Oh, that was back then. It was the first time that they realized that I was bipolar and and there were some of them were still calling it uh, manic depressive. Right. Oh, wow. You have been uh, describing the manifestations of bipolar. I'm sure there are more. What are the list of manifestations of symptoms? In the manic phase, it would be complete irresponsibility, no fear of doing anything as long as it doesn't usurp your folkways and mores as far as right and wrong. It's a complete feeling of sup superiority over everybody else in life. Mm. Uh, it makes you into the complete egocentric, if that's what you want to be. Right. It makes you think you can do everything, not only verbally, but physically. I, got, I tried to fight with people that could beat the hell out of me, and they were so afraid of my mouth that they didn't fight with me. But, you know, in normal circumstances, you think you get punched in the mouth. You're not afraid of anything when, when, when you're manic. You don't have to sleep. Oh, wow. You feel strong as an ox. Uh, you can take on the world and everything, even though it's, it's all in your mind and it's not true. Is that enough for you for today? Yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned, um, yeah, depression, you already talked about also uh, creativity and then drugs. Um, the bipolars also tend to take drugs such as alcohol or. Is that what you read about or is that what you read in books that they take drugs? No, that's a question that just arises at the moment. Oh, no, I don't think that's true. Okay. Uh, I, you know, for persons that likes alcohol to drink alcohol when they're manic or oh, no. <laughs> when they're bipolar. Yep. <laughs> well, I, I forgot one, one additional thing that I should tell you about. Yeah. It makes you very promiscuous. Mm. Okay. I became a woman lover when I became bipolar. I, I went through women like crazy. I don't know what they saw in me, but I had a lot of women in my life that we had affairs with. This is before I got married. So, yeah, you said what they saw in you. That might be confidence because if you acted, a lot of the characteristics you um, mentioned before kind of reminded me of narcissism, which is this overconfidence, um, overpowering overconfidence. Right? Yes. 
And That's I guess, very true. I think everybody yeah. likes them, not just them. But women, I think especially, we like that in men. So that <laughs> it might be that. <laughs> well, you may like it in men, but I don't think it's worthwhile to be truthful with you. Because it has to... Oh, now when it's unhealthy, it, right? It eventually will tire them out, I would think. Oh, yeah. And if it is unhealthy, that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. No balance, right? Um, what are some of the main misconceptions on bipolar? Well, the biggest misconception is that you can commit acts of, uh, you can commit atrocities. You can commit murders, that type of thing. It's being blamed for everything bad that happens in life in the media. It's an, it's an easy thing to do. I mean, they just, we don't know why they did that. So it's because he was bipolar. It annoys the hell out of me that they do that all the time because it's totally untrue. But, you know, that's life in a big, bad world. So what can you do? Another misconception, trying to think. That's the biggest one, uh, Valerie. I, I can't think of anything else for the moment. Yeah, I heard, I read somewhere uh, that bipolar, it's not a personality disorder. Is that true? Well, I don't know what else to call it if it isn't a personality disorder. I mean, you have enough personality for 35 people at once. Let me give you another. I'm sorry. I just remembered another misconception. Yeah. In the days of old and maybe today, when they couldn't diagnose bipolar, they said you were schizophrenic. Oh, right. Okay. A schizophrenic is a person that is not controlled by their cultural influences of what's right and wrong. They would do anything. It would kill the whatever it takes. And it's just, and it's not true. Uh, I mean, I just gave you the rationale for why not. Yeah. Because when you're at your sickest, you still recognize right from wrong and you wouldn't, you know, do anything, even when you're bipolar. Yeah. I lost my chain of thought. I apologize. Yeah. No, I understand. So it is schizophrenia and bipolar, they're similar in that sense. You're saying that you still know right from wrong. Absolutely. It's not like a psychopath. Because I think they don't right. know. They don't care. Right? Yes. Very different. Correct. I don't think you could. Well, but it's still misnamed. Whenever whenever the uh, the atrocity becomes blurred and they can't figure out what it is, it's because you were bipolar. Mm, that's what yeah. they say. And there are so many reasons. Maybe that's why I asked you that question about the causes of bipolar, uh, besides chemical imbalance. Um, you never know. It might be childhood abuse, um, so many things, um, traumas in general. How, how can I explain this? I told you that speed tripped the chemical imbalance in, in, in my brain yeah. and made me manicky. Your idea of a trauma would come close to that reality. If anything, if a person was a latent bipolar, didn't know it, was acting out a normal life, and something came along to upset his mental apple cart, the chemical imbalance might be upset. It's possible, uh, Valerie. Yeah. It's the same type of thing. I, I did it from a drug. The drug set me off. But trauma might have exercised bipolar yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. But you had to be bipolar from the beginning. I mean, it has to be a latent thing that you're born with in the first place. A lot of people walk around, they don't even know they're bipolar, and they never become manicky, and they never become depressed. And only if some, something really startling happens in their life would any of those manifestations come out. Yeah, yeah. So it has to have a catalyst, yes. something yeah, to provoke. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna write that word down. That's good. 
Yeah. So in the beginning of your book, uh, Bipolar Me, you start with a poem, a beautiful poem dedicated to Linda, your wife, My Happy Bipolar yes. Life. Yes. Uh, I have some questions for you about that poem. When did you meet Linda and what is about her that changed everything? <laughs> <laughs> your questions are, are very tough. I'm curious. One member I told you I had this promiscuousness about women yeah and and if i had a sexual encounter with them i married them i was married five times linda was my fifth linda was the only woman that was not a model that i married that wasn't particularly gorgeous she was beautiful but she wasn't gorgeous i don't know how to explain the difference she had i like blondes and i like curvy woman uh, you know with beautiful figures and she had a nice figure but she didn't meet any of those criterias and and when i left my fourth wife who gave me my four children or i should say three children one adopted child i decided that i must be doing something wrong it's my lesson from god i walked outside and went over to an apartment house i was saving money to to leave my wife at the time and giving money cash that i got through my business to my accountant and when i accumulated fifteen hundred dollars i just walked out and i walked into this garden apartment called chestnut grove in doylestown and uh i met this woman at a party and i said i was going to marry her and she thought that i was a nut and she's probably right in that respect <laughs> but a year later we were married and and um she was a hundred percent different than all the other women physically in my life she was the smartest woman I ever met. And I needed somebody that was extremely smart to put up with my shit. Because mm. at least that woman would be able to look underneath all the stupid things that I do and say, well, I can't help himself. You know, of course, she would threaten me if I really tiffed her off and, and uh, you know, run out to the car. I'm going to leave. And I would run after her and steal the keys so she couldn't leave. Oh, wow. But uh She's been my, my, my guardian. She's been everything to me, my best friend. We do everything together. We like the same things. Yet she's very pragmatic, and I'm anything but pragmatic. You know, so uh, we're a great balance for each other. It's been wonderful. Wonderful. It's, I think it's 27 years. <laughs> How, yeah, I would say I would use that word, yeah, wonderful. Um, what, where, and who is God to you? Valerie, do you write these things down before you ask the question? I actually do, yes. Some of them, not all of them. <laughs> I think God is inside all of us. He's always there. All through my life, everything, every time something bad happened to me, I was diagnosed with a bad heart when I was in my 20s, that I was going to die, that I had an overabundance of corpuscles or something or red blood and it would kill me and all of a sudden all those manifestations and there were more than that stopped so i attribute it to god i think all of us walk around with god inside and 99 of us never take advantage of it i've been lucky i i had enough incidents that i got scared that there must be a god and he's inside me so every time you know every time i need help i i in my own way i i thank him for, for letting me live another day and for helping me all my life. And he has. Maybe it's a she. I don't know if it's a she, God. <laughs> uh, you, you never know. Yeah, I love in the beginning of our conversation where you, um, uh, in the way you said something that I believe with all my heart that we all life itself, there's no separation. And we are also all God. 
uh, the representations of God, the different ways God uh, manifests um, himself or herself in, in a human body or in everything else, trees, nature, and everything else. Um, speaking of God and your wife, Linda, what is love to you? <laughs> You're knocking me over with your questions, you know. <laughs> what is love? Yeah. Love is, is when you can look past at all the weaknesses of your partner, of all the things you hate, and still love them and cherish them and want to be with them. That's what love is. Wow. There's no judgment, uh, unconditional love in a way. Yeah, just without conditions. In a way. Yeah, correct. I love that. Correct. Right. It's the closest thing that you can come to unconditional love. Yeah. So now I have a section here that I, I called uh, Lessons Learned. So I'll be asking you, I think, four questions. What valuable lessons did you learn from four marriages? <laughs> be careful of, of who you pick. <laughs> Don't be so spontaneous in your, in your actions and, and, and running into a, a serious affair. Hold back a little bit and... and um, don't use sex as a criteria of who you should marry. Even if they're sexless, uh, as long as they're a real friend, that's the real criteria of who you should marry. You should marry your closest friend. And, and because all the platonic crap and the romance wears off at one time or another, it comes back, of course. But that's not the way to pick a partner. You should pick a partner for, for the one that endears themselves to you, that accepts you for who you are with all your idiosyncrasies. <laughs> And terriblenesses. I mean, you imagine somebody living with me with my stupid mind. <laughs> and she's been a tremendous help to me. And, and she's not afraid to tell me when, when I'm doing something wrong. And the worst part of it is I listen to her. <laughs> and, I'm, and, I tr and I try to change because I know she's right. How wonderful. I think a woman, all women are much more mature than men. I think men are kids all their lives and they never really grow up maturity-wise. As long as they, they can get away with it, why should they? But uh, if you marry somebody like Linda, you know in no time at all that you better grow up and get off the pot. <laughs> That's cute. Um, what valuable lessons did you learn from being in a psychiatric hospital? I know you're called not the nut house. <laughs> yeah. A nut house. Yeah. What did I learn from being in a nut house? <laughs> yeah. I learned that when I was in a nut house, I don't know which shoot today, they didn't know their ass from their elbow. That's what I learned. And when I walked out of there, even saturated with Thorazine, which is uh, like putting a 3,000 ton weight on you to hold you down, oh. that they couldn't help me. I had to help myself. Um, unless we believe in ourselves. Unless we have a desire to help ourselves internally and, and the perseverance to keep pushing ourselves to get well, to get better, to be a better human being, you'll never be cured of bipolar of any, or anything else for that matter. Those are the ingredients. And you have to believe in God, too, because hmm. he's always there at your shoulder. And I feel very strongly about those things. Yeah, it makes so much sense to me. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Um, what lessons did you learn from your grandmother? mother and father from my father i learned that there's only black and white in the world right and wrong there's no in between and from my mother i learned that her unconditional love if i believed everything she told me i would be a weakling all my life and i stopped listening to her when i was 13 years old although i loved her 
I mean, when, when a child, what's wrong with the kids today is they're so cuddled by their parents that they, God forbid, they should make a mistake or do something on their own. I have a, a stepson that, um, I don't know if that's the right name of, my stepdaughter, who he can't even go to the bathroom unless his wife shows him, uh, unless his mother shows him how to wipe. People like that have a hard time growing as far as strength is concerned intellectually. It just doesn't happen. So uh, I see too much of it with kids. I'm afraid that if, God forbid, all the people from my generation die, and this is really egocentric, that we'll, we'll, all we have left will be a bunch of weak kids. Hopefully, their trauma will teach them how to be strong. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that very much happens, yeah, suffering. Um, but it doesn't have to be. You're disappearing again. <laughs> yeah. What about your grandmother? What lessons have you learned? My Bobby? Bobby, right? <laughs> my grandmother was the most precious thing in my life. She taught me Russian and German, and, and she told me about the Bolsheviks and the persecution in, in Russia in the different languages when I was just a, up to seven years of age when, when she died. And, and, and uh, she told me about death because she told me she was going to go upstairs to go to sleep and she died. Right. So I thought for a long, long time that death was nothing more than going to sleep and not waking up. She was very precious to me. She would come out when I was playing baseball in the street. Boxball was called in those days with, with, with hamburgers <laughs> <laughs> and embarrassed the hell out of me. <laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> And when I was bad, she would call me. Uh, she would. She never talked English. On she only talked in Yiddish. And she would say, instead of Sydney, it was Schlumka. And 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 I'm sorry, it was Schlema when I was good, and Schlumka when I was bad. And she got our broom out and she started beating me in the, <laughs> in the rear with it when I did something bad. She was wonderful. Next to my mother, she was the most precious woman in my life. Excluding Linda, of course, you know. I think Linda is, is my mother, too, at times. Oh, wow. In Jewish, we have an expression called balabusta. It means somebody in charge of everything in life, a woman who is in charge of everything in life, and that's my wife, if I let her. <laughs> yeah. And when I rebel, she uh, <laughs> goes back to be a normal woman. Yeah, in a very good way, yeah, she has. In a good way, correct. <laughs> um, what lessons profound lessons have you learned from losing people you love, such as your daughter, 11-year-old um, daughter? I have a picture of my daughter who died in front of me, and, and she was one of the most precious kids in my life. We were very close. And when I exploded with speed, I wound up in divorce and all the bad things happened to me. It meant I couldn't be with her except in City Hall with a guard with a gun. And in those days, they thought if you were bipolar, they didn't know what the illness was called. But if they thought you were off the handle, they would watch you while you were with your daughter. It was the most terrible thing that ever happened to me. And out of that, the same doctor who was a shrink, by the way, who administered lithium, told me I should leave the whole world behind that I knew or else I'd die of a broken heart. And I did that. And then after 45 years, I found out where my daughter was where she was buried in Pennsylvania, and I asked her to forgive me for being weak and not being with her. Because I don't know if I could have pushed myself through it and been with her rather than breaking up the pieces. I don't know if I've answered your question or not. Yes, uh, very much, yeah. I will be asking you my final questions unrelated to the subject. 
How do you define success? What is success to you? Well, success isn't money. That's number one. Success is when you can live with whatever you have, even if it's nothing, and you have the people around you who love you. That's a tremendous accomplishment, you know. With my mouth, I have people around me who love me, <gasps> and, and that's worth everything to me. What is to be a strong person? A strong person is a person who can be put down, have the worst tragedies happen to him in life, and pull himself up by his bootstraps and look for a better day. That's a strong person. I agree. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? That I'll probably never be perfect. That I have to keep on pushing myself to be a better human being all the time. Right. Don't we all? Until I take my last breath, I, I want to improve myself. Right. That's why I write, because every book, I just wrote another book, by the way. I don't know if you know about it. Yet. It's called Lena, an abused, bruised, and, and bloodied woman on Amazon. I interviewed a woman who became my friend who went through all kinds of torture, Valerie. And I wrote a book about her because she came out of it by packing in all the demons that she had lived with all her life. And now she's leaving an, a normal life. And I wanted to show people that you can get out of the worst things in life if you keep on pushing right. yourself. Right. That's something that you have been talking to me about yeah, throughout the conversation. Yeah, yeah correct. It's, it's changing the inside, yeah, from inside out. Right. Um, do you love yourself unconditionally? No. Mm, why not? If you love yourself unconditionally, you're, you join the rest of the club of being shallow as far as I'm concerned. I realize and hope I always realize how imperfect I am and, and try to improve myself. Um, that's, that's part of maturing. That's part of growing up as a human being. And a lot of people never do that. They think they made the big time and they're everything that they wanted to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's you have an interesting interpretation of unconditional love. I have a different one. I think a lot of the problems we have internally is because we don't accept ourselves. Embracing what we are in this moment, whatever is happening, and kind of studying and being with that for a while, even if it is a quote-unquote bad thing, that will make us grow. Uh, instead of rather than doing the opposite, pushing away, trying to numb our pain and um, calling ourselves imperfect or that we are not good enough. I think a lot of the problems we have start there, but this lack of self-acceptance and self-love. Well, I don't agree with you completely. Maybe I do, but it's kind of a sideways agreement. Uh, I'm not dissatisfied because I'm imperfect on I'm probably more at peace with myself than I've ever been in my entire life now. It's just that I think I can always be better. That doesn't develop a guilt pattern in me. It's just something that I do. Yeah. So, um, and unconditional love is to share your shit with someone who can get past it and, and will accept you for what you are. Don't try to change you. Yeah. It's interesting the way you interpret. Yeah, it's, it's a bit different. I think it's just some words, perhaps. I think it's possible that to love and accept ourselves or other people unconditionally, but it's still uh, hold their space, create their space for grow, for growth. I think it's the only way we can grow, can grow anyway in love. I don't think there's other way um, of growing. I know suffering is another one, pain, but this is also requires love, understanding the pain. And understand has a lot to do with love, understanding. 
I agree with you, by the way. I think if you don't want to grow as a human being every minute of every day, you've lost something important in your life. And there's a lot of people that surround their, themselves with their world. I call it settled in with their world. They don't want anybody else to come in and, and disrupt it. I don't. I try not to deal with those people because there's no growth there. I try to deal with people that every day make life an adventure and try something new and try to improve themselves and have no guilt in doing it, by the way. Yeah, that sounds like unconditional love to me. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> so I have uh, three more questions for you. If you knew you would die soon, would you make any change about your life? Do anything differently? I don't think so. I See, I, th I believe in predestination. In Jewish, the word is beshaft. In other words, I think God has the whole thing figured out, Valerie, and we're just kind of pawns we can get off in a little bit in a tangent and do some of our own things. But the final destination is really up to God. Mm, right. Do you believe in life after death? I I don't know. I I would like to think that, that there is life after death, but I don't know if there is. Right. Do you have any regrets? No. No. Well, I, I think everything bad that's ever happened to me in life has taught me a lesson of being a better human being. Right. Right. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? I'm breathing. I can walk. I can take in food. And I can put my arms around my wife and kiss her. Mm, wow. That's four things. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> um, it has been a genuine, meaningful, and fun conversation, Sid. Thank you so much. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? If you look at Sid Mock, my, my website, sidnockman.com, you can get uh, a pretty good idea of, of what, how I think and what I did. That's on my website. And, and uh, I have a bunch of, of uh, links that I can give you, but I don't have them in front of me now, Valerie. If you want to send me an email, I'll send them to you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'll post that on your profile, the podcast profile. Okay. Thank you so much again, Sid, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Sid Nackman, please visit his website, sidnackman.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Mm -hmm.